am I is one of those fundamental questions we all ask at some point in our personal development. But imagine how different the answers would be if you didn't have a genetic relationship with one or both of the people that brought you up. People who've been adopted or those conceived from donor eggs or sperm are in precisely this position. But while those of us who've been adopted have been entitled to trace our birth parents for 30 years, those conceived by the newer technologies do not automatically have this right. Does this matter? What lessons from the experiences of adopted people can be applied to those conceived from donated eggs or sperm? Is the law for the new reproductive technologies 30 years behind the law for adoption? Well, in the studio with me are Julia Feast, the Policy Research and Development Consultant at the British Association for Adoption and Fostering. She's counselled thousands of adults who were adopted as children through the search and reunion process. Carol Howells is an academic lawyer and the course team chair for course W100. And Alexina McQuinney is the senior research fellow at Dundee University's Department of Law, who's researched the relationships in assisted conception families. Welcome to you all. Let's start the discussion with adoption. Julia, what have we learnt over the years about giving people the right to trace their biological parents? When the law changed in 1975, it came about partly because many adopted people said, I want to know more information about myself. Who am I? Where do I come from? Um, Why do I look the way I do? And the the law acknowledged that by changing, as I said, in in 1975 and then subsequently in 1976. And it, it opened up doors for adopted people. They were able then to trace information about medical details, information about the family, who they belong to, and just learn a huge amount of information about who they are. So, Carol, it's an example then of the law responding to to a shift in society, to human needs. Yes. Um, Originally, adoption was there to create legal security, and an adoption was first introduced in 1926 to recognise the fact that many children were being cared for by other relatives or by non-family members, and the rights of those individuals were put ahead, if you like, of the rights of the children to know. But um, that did change in the 1970s with a recognition of this desire and, you know, in many cases, this need to know. Julia, we, we talk a lot about the contact and reunion process, but just give us a sense from your experience of what it's actually like for adopted children. It's a very big decision for people to make to decide to search for birth family members because inevitably the adopted person thinks about their own adoptive family and the impact it's going to have on them, the emotional effect. Many say they often feel disloyal doing it, but there is this desperate curiosity about who they are and why they look the way they do that sort of spurs them on. And it's often not things like uh, having a baby or adoptive parents dying that will, will make them decide to search it's just a basic curiosity the need to know many people will say that they have feared that they will receive rejection if they search for birth family members others are really excited that this might be a very new thing for them and it'd be lovely and, and a wonderful happy ending so doctor people in our country at least can receive counseling prior to deciding whether to search or not to think about the implications for them and the impact it might have because it is a, an emotional roller coaster. There's lots of highs and lows through the whole process. But the end result is, for many people, the majority would say that it's been a very good thing because they've been able to answer important questions that they've had. 
Well, there's a long history of research for adoptive parents and children to draw on. The experience of years has informed them about child-rearing practices such as how and what to tell children about their adopted status. Of course, no such precedent exists for parents undergoing treatments by the newer reproductive technologies. So how is the experience of growing up different for children conceived using these newer technologies, including IVF? Alexina, you've researched the children of assisted reproduction. Is there a parallel with that kind of family? Do you think the ability to trace would be a good thing? Yes, I do. The, the problem is that it's very difficult to um, persuade the people who are providing this service um, for infertile adults that this, is, this will be positive for the children or even necessary for the children. Why? Because they only see it as a solution to adult infertility. Um, and that if you look at the medical literature in this area, uh, you will find that there's enormous concentration on that um, because the science of it is based on um, mammalian physiology. So if you talk to some people, they don't even differentiate between when, when mammalian is human, if you see what I mean. So it's a different way of thinking. What about the lessons from uh, adoption? Julie, obviously this is your field. You've done a lot of work on, on, on adoption. When you look at the instances we're seeing now of assisted conception, um, often donor-assisted conception, do you think there are direct parallels? Yes, there are direct parallels because if there's not a genetic relationship with both parents, then that child may be very different. For example, if it's a, a child born of a sister conception do, with donated gametes, they may look more like their donor than the mother mm. uh, and they may be growing up thinking, I look really different and why do I look different? Mm. But unlike adoption where people are told that they are adopted, I mean, people would not be allowed to adopt without being set, agreeing to be truthful with their child. But those people in adoption, they can celebrate the child's differences. Alexina, would you agree that there are direct oh, very, parallels? In oh, very two? much so. Very much mm. so. And I think what would be fascinating would be to have an opportunity to explore it in much greater depth than has been done at, um, up to date. Um, because there are parallels. And um, I think not to acknowledge that is um, really almost insisting on inventing mm. the wheel. Carol, does the law see parallels? The law's beginning to see the parallels, but the law on assisted conception has lagged behind. And in fact, whilst it was the lessons from adoption were considered prior to the 1990 legislation, they weren't embraced. Mm. Um, and that's perhaps because of the difference in the fact that everybody was recognising there were these wonderful new technologies that could assist infertile couples to have children. It, it was a you know a huge brand new horizon, if you like, um, and more concentration was put on the couples to begin with than looking at the effects that there may be of any resultant children. So, so the science was ahead of the law then, the law in, was playing catch-up? In catch many up. ways, yes. And Alexina, do you, do you think then the emphasis should be firmly on the rights of the child here? Yes, yes. But I think what we really need to uh, focus on is the rights of the child, what happens to the child, is actually the outcome of a medical intervention. And this is a fundamental block, if you see what I mean, because as far as the medics are concerned, the, the result of their uh, intervention is to produce a pregnancy. And that's all that matters? 
Well, for many, yes. Uh, that is success as far as they are concerned. I mean, nominally, they will say they're interested in the welfare of the child, but they don't like that clause no. at all, so and they want rid of it. Julie, would, would you agree that then there's a, there's a gap between how the medical profession looks at this and the human dimension or the social dimension? Yeah, most definitely, because in adoption, mm-hmm. people who apply to adopt would go for preparation, they would have counselling, we'd know all about their history... When people uh, want to have a child using donated um, egg or sperm, they don't have to be counselled. They can refuse. They can say, I don't need to. I know all the implications. So unlike in adoption where people talk about what the child needs, why do they need to know information about their background and why is it important, that's often ignored. And Carol, how does the law deal with all of this? It it sounds like in in, in many ways it's a minefield in, in how to approach these very personal issues. The law treads a very careful path in this area and it hasn't always been able to keep pace with changes in academic research and with changes in in attitudes you know infertility no longer carries a social stigma that maybe it once did but one of the difficulties it, it did have when the act was passed in 1990 was thinking about the birth certificates So actually either the married couple or the couple having treatment together are named on the birth certificate and in effect that's creating a fiction on that certificate Mm. and the fact that there has been uh, assisted conception is not noted on the birth certificate anywhere and that has been one of the fundamental issues um, in then children finding out about this because quite often they're not going to find out because they're not told and it's not reflected on their birth certificate. Alexina, do you think it's a basic problem with that fiction? Oh, I think so very much. I think there's enormous resistance within um, infertile people to tell their children because it reveals their infertility. And I would say that although we talk about it in general terms much more easily, and even male infertility is talked about generally, if you talk to men who are infertile, they most certainly don't want to talk about it in public and are very, very upset mm, yeah. and devastated. And, but, but isn't there an argument, though, that, that if you've been through that, that mm, pain of infertility mm. and you have managed to then have the happy result you wanted and, and have a child, what that child doesn't know would never hurt it? Well, that's certainly been the argument in the past. You don't think it's got any merit? No. Because I think what happens is, from my studies of families who've, who've, who have done this, they do it very successfully for a while, but they are running enormous risks. That either when they go for a health record, for example, at the GP surgery, is there anything of this in the family? They either have to lie or evade answering. And the children spot the differences. They don't say anything, but and, they're aware of the differences. And, Julia, when it comes to the longer-term perspectives, uh, is that something that children will, will suffer from? People can sense when there's something different within their family. It's, it's amazing what mm. children pick mm. up. And adopted people who weren't told that they were adopted would often say, when they were told, maybe in their, it may have been disclosed unexpectedly in their 50s, will say, that all fits into place now. I now know why I behave this way and or that way. So I think children will pick it up. And it must be huge pressures for families to live with such a big secret. Well, Talk About Tracing assumes that genetic identity is important, but this is quite a Western idea. For some other cultures, knowledge of your genes would have little value. For them, what's important is your social identity, and that largely comes from the family you grow up in. So should we be so hung up about someone's genetic or biological identity, or is the important thing social identity. Julia, what do you think? 
It's a combination of both, really. But I think the, the genetic identity is, is important, particularly for medical information. And we, we've learned so much how our beings, our genes, affect our health. And that's really, really important. So I think it's a combination. Growing up in a family, in a social family, you, you learn from them and you take all the, all the attributes that, that they can give you. But it, you shouldn't then have to deny your roots. Carol, what's, what, what's the legal perspective on, on this question, genetic or social identity? The law has difficulty with this question. Um, and it, I think its difficulty is shown by the fact that it actually never defines what a family is. There is no legal definition. The law tends to talk in either sort of bloodline relationships, marriage lines, talks about biological parents, but it actually doesn't come up with any solutions or any answers because in many ways here it is trying to reflect what society is driving and because that concept is not a, a static one the law is always if you like slightly behind and has created certain specific rights and obligations to cope with particular relationships mm -hmm. but doesn't acknowledge whether it's social biological or genetic identity that is the more important. Alexina, would you agree with, with Julia that when we talk about identity, it is a combination of social and genetic, or, or would you see the genetic being more important? No, it's obviously an interplay between the two. Uh, and But I think a lot of this is is is, um, is is partly historical. There was a great revolt against any concept about genetics being important because of the experience in Germany. And eugenics was a, a dirty word for a very, very long time. But then but these are the Nazi uh, yes, experiments. Yes, yes, but well, just the whole concept. So you had the idea that identity was socially constructed, and there's a very strong body of opinion, particularly in sociology, which sees it as a social construct, which would fit what you're saying about the different cultures where it is socially constructed. But then at the same time, we now have had developments in genetics, which show clearly that there are certain conditions and trays and so on that come through and common knowledge is one of the first things that relatives say when a new baby gets born is who does he look like <laughs> it is so in part of us carol I'm, I'm left again though thinking that that obviously it's very difficult for, for the law to approach this area and you've been indicating that but there's there's a basic problem isn't it with with the intrusion of law into our family lives and and these are mm. are obviously such you know closely held issues and, mm. and and matters of extreme privacy for many people yes they are and i think that's probably one of the way difficulties the law has with this is is where the acceptable line is to draw for legal principles and if you like legal interference with children's rights with parents rights with the rights of grandparents with the wider family okay well many adults who are adopted as children have this deep feeling that their own sense of personal identity won't be complete without knowing who their birth mothers are. The feeling is so strong that it prompts them to go through the emotionally difficult process of adoption tracing, something we've been hearing about. But let's talk in more detail about it, because gradually small groups of donor-assisted adults are coming forward and expressing similar needs. So whose rights should the law prioritise? The rights of children of new reproductive technologies, the donors or the infertile couples who will subsequently become parents. Alexina, where do you think that emphasis should be? Whose rights need to come first? I think without question it has to be the person created in this way. They never gave consent to being created in this way, and they carry a lifetime of repercussions arising from it. 
And if you read the literature now about adults or teenagers who are talking about it, it's, it's very poignant. They feel they're divided down the middle. They don't know one half of themselves. They talk about looking in the mirror and wondering, where did my ears come from? Where did my hands come from? Why do I not have any good relationships would, with my would, father? But would you not accept the argument of, of someone who's gone through the, the, the pain of infertility and really struggled with all of that, that they just want to put that behind them once they have the child? They don't want to dwell on, on that past. Well, I can understand it very well, but we're listening to the children all the time in all other spheres. Why should we not be listening to the voices of people who've been created in this way? Julia, would you agree? Absolutely. I feel a child has a right to know who their parents are, their genetic parents. I think it's really important so they can make informed decisions about their lives that may have profound effects if they don't know that information. And it's a pity, in a way, that the law's such that parents from donor-conceived children don't have to tell. And there's no evidence of an adopted child. They will have a, a new certificate that's given on the adoption order. It doesn't mean to say they have to flaunt it everywhere because they also can produce a little certificate. And this is the argument that if donor-conceived people had to have a different certificate, then parents wouldn't be able to hide. And, so you and think there should be a legal requirement of disclosure? My view is that children should be told and that we need to help the parents to be confident that by being truthful with your child and telling them about their origins is not going to affect their relationship. But adoption research has shown that the impact on the family, on the adoptive family, is a positive one because the adoptive parents too can understand why their son or daughter needed to search. And in many cases, although they might have been slightly anxious about it, are supportive and research has shown that the relationship with the adoptive family is a strong one, an enduring one. Alexina? I think in terms of acknowledgement that uh, children created in this way have a right and a need to know about their family of origin, their kinship group, if you like, that has been established under uh, a court case, which was Joe Rose and another, to establish that they had a right um, under human rights legislation to information uh, on non-identifying information about the donor. And that was a debate against the Department of Health and the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority. And the judgment was a very interesting one and a very important one because the judge recognized the need and psychological need for people created in this way to have information about their origins. Um, the Department of Health argued that the donor's right to family life should also be protected, but at the end of the day, he came down very firmly on the side of the children created in this way. Are there other examples of what this process is like, the, the tracing process? Well, there's never been an opportunity of tracing to date. Um, certainly those who are adults, um, prior to the 1990 Act, some have tried to get the information from the private clinics, but... Um, without much success. Although interestingly, just quite recently, one adult has managed to get some information uh, through that contact. Uh, in fact, no, two now have. So there's a sort of movement and they're taking courage from each other to do it. But they met with great hostility when they started out. Carol, is there any evidence on what the process of tracing is like for a donor? There is very little evidence because, of course, so few donors have been traced. But in... Um, some countries in America, for example, it has happened. And there are some stories um, which have been told, and one in particular was of interest because the child traced the donor uh, and 
built a good relationship with the donor and the donor's family. Um, and his new family was very accepting of this fact because they saw that what had been done was, you know, enabling somebody who otherwise wouldn't have been able to have a child. And so they saw it as a positive thing and a positive relationship. But the twist there was that the biological mother then attempted to form an emotional attachment with the donor. Um, and that's where uh, an, an issue started to arise because um, that individual had felt they had had a child with this person. So um, it had an impact on the donor's family life. It it did indeed. Um, but because the donor was open about this with his wife and with his family, they were able to overcome this. And I'm sure there is evidence that many donors would welcome some tracing, but there are others who just feel they're just a genetic contributor. That doesn't make any sort of relationship. It's just genetics. I think what's interesting in this debate is we don't really know what donors uh, on the whole think about this. But I must say, I shall never forget when I was doing this, doing my research, being part of a session when a doctor was recruiting donors, six young men, wanting to learn about being donors. And one of them turned to the doctor and said, are the children happy? And I've always remembered that because I thought if one youngster at 18, who really probably had been told it was the same as a blood donation and it would help his pocket money, had worked it out, that he had to think about the children, you can't assume that all donors haven't got some concern. They may not want to have it revealed, and that's not being that's not on the cards at all, that it would only be with their permission. And, of course, some of them gave uh, donations for a very long period and therefore have a very large number of children who could stress them. So it's an issue. But I don't see that, in given the present attitude towards the next generation and children, we can go on pretending that their rights can take precedence over those mm-hmm. of the children. People fear that uh, we're going to lose people who will donate sperm and egg, but I don't believe that's the case. I think we're going to get a different type of donor, and maybe someone who's been married, got children, and wants to help and, and, and be different and would want to be open as well. So I, I, people's fears, I, I don't think, will be borne out. It's, it's just how you educate people about the importance of knowing who we are, identity, and giving people support to make sure they can ensure the child has that. Well, in 1975, the law for adoption grew up. In a wholesale review of legislation, new rights were granted to adopted people. But today, fewer and fewer babies are put up for adoption, while more and more infertile couples are pinning their hopes on the newer technologies. It remains to be seen how the law will respond to the challenge. Meanwhile, I'd like to thank Carol Howells, Alexina McQuinney and Julia Feast for their part in what for me has been a fascinating debate.